0: Some words make it outside of the realm of specialized language, and others do not.
1: Usage is one thing. Legal usage might be something else.
0: Coming up on Word Matters, when technical terms do or don't enter the common lexicon and pleading in the past tense. I'm Emily Brewster, and Word Matters is produced by Merriam-Webster in collaboration with New England Public Media. On each episode, Merriam-Webster editors Neil Servan, Amon Shea, Peter Sokolowski, and I explore some aspect of the English language from the dictionary's vantage point. A passing glance at English vocabulary will reveal a wealth of words that have gone from a highly specific technical meaning to broader figurative use. One can diagnose a problem without earning the credentials to make a medical diagnosis, and debacles these days typically don't involve the breaking up of river ice. How is it that some specialized words slip into general use and others remain lodged in their particular spheres of influence? I'll investigate. Gary writes to us Why is it that some words from medicine make it into the mainstream language but the rest are only used in healthcare? There are several words that are so descriptive and can be applied in other situations, like anastomosis. Why don't we use it to describe a situation of a path connecting two roads or a canal connecting bodies of water? Is there any reason why physicians have managed to hold on to these very specific terms, which could make language and description easier for the layman or at least more fun? I think this is an excellent question for everyone's edification, mine included, because I did not know the word anastomosis. Before reading Gary's question, we define this term as the union of parts or branches, as of streams, blood vessels, or leaf veins, so as to intercommunicate or interconnect, and also a product of anastomosis, network, as a synonym of the word network. So why does a really excellent word like anastomosis stay in the realm of very specialized language instead of traveling outside that realm? And I don't really have a good answer for this. Some words make it outside of the realm of specialized language and others do not. I think about in the past year how we have all learned some specialized medical terms because they have suddenly become ubiquitous. So PPE is not really a new term, right? But we all now have been talking about PPE or were a lot more a year ago. And I think that there are plenty of other terms that have never made it into the language of the lay person, but that only exist in the language of specialists. And I think the answer for why is just that the writers of the world have not noticed.
2: Also, sometimes words try to make it out and they get pushed back or people scold them. Like aggravate is a classic example of usage guides have long said that aggravate should be restricted to make worse, particularly of symptoms. As Ah. opposed to annoy. And this is less of a thing than it used to be. And it never really made sense anyway, since the original meaning of aggravate was to weigh down with weight. It comes from gravari weight. But for a long time, when it started to kind of drift away from medicine or medical use, people would wag their fingers at it and say, it's
0: bad word, bad word. Right. But it proved too useful because right. we have latched onto it. Because and... too
2: many things are aggravating out there. <laughs> exactly. restrict it to doctors.
3: Well, there's no. also this bridge of understanding that has to happen. Some of the medical language is just very complex and it's about a subject that can be very complex. And even if you're trying to write it to an audience in a way that is understandable, it's not always going to be grasped in a way that we can then apply it to more general use. like, Sometimes you need a kind of a bridge like metaphor or some way of needing to apply that more technical concept to something that's in the general world. Like the word myopia for nearsightedness, you know, it's, we understand now what myopic means, but that used to be simply a term used by ophthalmologists. And then once the idea of becoming figuratively nearsighted, not seeing the forest for the trees or what have you, became something that we refer to in language, myopic became a useful word for that. And it needed that necessity, really, for that to happen and for myopic to become this other word apart from referring to the medicine of the eye.
0: I was going to make the point that anastomosis has a hurdle to gain extended metaphorical use because its meaning is not really transparent, just looking at it. If you don't have an understanding of what this word means, you can't really piece it together Although with the right context, you certainly could. But the same is also true of myopia. And yet myopic is doing quite fine in kind of general discourse. Yeah,
3: something had to have happened in the study of, I guess, nearsightedness or myopia that it it caught on with the general populace. And I don't know what that was.
0: Well, many more of us are myopic, literally, than maybe we think about anastomosis.
2: I think one of the things that's funny about medical words is that we can never really tell what's going to happen to make them be brought into the mainstream. And in lexicographic circles, of course, one of the most famous stories, and by famous, I mean literally dozens of people have heard this story, (laughs) was when the Oxford English Dictionary left out the word appendicitis. This is in the the late 19th century when they were first doing that section of the alphabet. And and James Murray, the editor-in-chief, had excellent authorities telling him don't even bother. Like he wrote to a number of professors. He wrote to the head of surgery at Oxford College. He was an inveterate letter writer. He was writing letters constantly and dozens if not hundreds of letters coming in every day asking about because I mean this is such a broad ranging dictionary. They're covering incredibly obscure words should this go in or not. And almost everybody I think assured him don't worry about appendicitis. It's like people are not going to be looking it up. And then, of course, about 10 years later, the coronation of Edward VII was delayed for two or three weeks because he came down with appendicitis. Suddenly, appendicitis is oh, wow. front page word. Sure. And the a whole number country
1: of, was looking it up, right, presumably. Not just the
2: country, but the world was yeah. looking it up and finding that it was not in the OED. And, of course, this is not the OED's fault. And they put it in later on. It made it in there, and now it's a very common word. At the time, though, it was entirely reasonable to think we don't need to include this. Only
1: specialists needed this term. I think that betrays one other little thing, which is an idea of what a dictionary is. That is to say that those medical consultants who are men of science probably thought that this dictionary project was purely a humanities project, that the language of literature and the Bible is what they would cover, but not the professional language, the technical language, the medical language that they were familiar with. It took a while for people to understand dictionaries as places where the language of plumbing and the language of dentistry would also be not just the language of literature.
2: I would argue that's still going on today, though. And there are all kinds of fields that we overlook, either because we don't have the resources, the time, or the knowledge to really plumb them.
0: We have to make a determination that a term is relevant for a general use dictionary. There are specialized dictionaries for different spheres of knowledge. But a general use dictionary doesn't aim to cover, well, it does aim to cover what a coronation is going to be delayed by. That's (laughs) for sure. (laughs) Sure.
1: So that medical term became a kind of a public news item. We always say the current active vocabulary of American English is our goal for coverage. And that does not include very abstruse technical terms. But in this case, it moved from the technical to the kind of public sphere.
3: goes to Emily's point where, how she mentioned the past year, we've come to learn all these other new medical terms that we didn't need to know.
1: Contact tracing.
3: Contact tracing. I could not have told you two years ago what a comorbidity was. Or fomites. Fomites. So you've got all these other terms that have just come into our parlance because we needed them, because we needed to talk about them ourselves. And it's not limited to the jargon of medicine, not limited to medical journals or the kind of talk that doesn't even need to happen to a patient necessarily. It's now become a social good to know these words, and so it's changed how we thought about them, what our understanding of them, and that's going to continue to happen in
1: different ways. Sure, and sometimes the words themselves change. So thinking back to the beginnings of the Oxford English Dictionary in the late 1800s, that's when another term was used in a medical sense, the term brainstorm, And we don't think of it as a medical term today, but our 1934 edition defines brainstorm as a violent, transient mental derangement manifested in a maniacal outburst, popularly any transitory agitation or confusion of mind. So it basically meant insanity, right? The Funk and Wagnalls Dictionary of 1913 defined it as impulsive insanity. And yet we think of the term brainstorm today as meaning sort of the sudden onset of an idea which traces back to a sudden bright idea, the 1920s or so, and brainstorming as a kind of a business term from the 1950s. So this is a word that has been forgotten in its original use. I remember it's in one of the Sherlock Holmes stories in the fit of insanity meaning. But now we think of brainstorming as something else completely. So it's a term that went from the kind of medical diagnostic language to the sort of popular idea of a sudden bright idea.
0: This makes me think, too, about just the vast riches there are to be had in technical vocabulary and how it can be expanded and used in metaphorically in ways. There's just so much there. So I really like the word lanuginous. It's no. from botany. It means fuzzy, basically, <laughs> having covered in soft furs. Infants are often born with lanugo, which is a related word that means like a, a soft, downy hair. Have you ever touched the leaves of mullen, for example, they are lanuginous. I would really like to see linuginous just expanded into more (laughs) general use.
2: Absolutely. And while we're on the technical botanical terms, I would offer up marcescent, which is of a plant part, it means withered or withering without falling off. I felt like it really rang true for a lot of people during the (laughs) pandemic year. A lot of people, whether they realized it or not, felt terribly marcescent, like they had withered, but they were somehow still clinging on.
0: That's a good one. (laughs) How do you spell it?
2: M-A-R-C-E-S-C-E-N-T.
0: Oh, yeah. That's a good one. Yeah. Another one I like is nidification. Nidus means nest in Latin. And nidification is the making of a nest. I would really like to see the use of the word nidification in these settings.
1: We added the word cocooning to the dictionary in a similar meaning.
0: That is one that has made the transition. Sure. So <laughs> to there to is a hope.
2: butterfly.
1: <laughs>
0: That's right.
2: Uh, nidification has just got to be a couple of years behind.
0: Yeah, definitely. You're listening to Word Matters. I'm Emily Brewster. We'll be back after the break to tackle the pleaded, pled conundrum. Word Matters is produced by Merriam-Webster in collaboration with New England Public Media. Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte.
2: I'm Amon Shea. Do you have a question about the origin, history, or meaning of a word? email us at wordmatters at m-w.com.
1: I'm Peter Sokolowski. Join me every day for The Word of the Day, a brief look at the history and definition of one word, available at merriam-webster.com or wherever you get your podcasts. And for more podcasts from New England Public Media, visit the NEPM Podcast Hub at nepm.org.
0: If you enjoy Word Matters, check out the Science Diction Podcast from the producers of Public Radio's Science Friday. It's a podcast about words and the science behind them. On a recent episode, Language Evolves, Peter and I talk with Johanna Mayer about words born out of mistakes. That's Science Diction, available wherever you get your podcasts. One thing we at Merriam-Webster can always count on is that with every high-profile court case, there will come an increase in the number of people looking for the answer to this important question. Is the past tense of plead pleaded or pled? Here's Peter Sokolowski with the not-so-simple answer.
1: We have a letter from Brian who writes, I'm an attorney. While I don't practice criminal defense law, criminal convictions do play some role in my practice of immigration law. I was wondering if you could do a deep dive on pled guilty and pleaded guilty, as I've seen both used interchangeably, and there doesn't seem to be a consensus among attorneys on which one is correct. And that's a really good question because this is about usage, but usage is one thing. Legal usage might be something else. Uh, But pled or plead comes from that same class of verbs as other words like read and read, bleed and bled, lead and led, feed and fed. There's a group of words that are conjugated in this way, but not all of them have competing forms. It just so happens that this one has a couple of competing forms because the past tense, plead, pled, is sometimes spelled P-L-E-D. It's also sometimes spelled P-L-E-A-D, like read and read, which is very confusing for a lot of people. Fed and led are spelled with just a single E for that short vowel. Like plead is normally seen, but pleaded as a competing form does exist. And it turns out it's more frequently found. Pleaded is, in fact, more frequently found even in legal use in the United States. So, pleaded guilty, for example, is completely standard. And it turns out that legal usage advisors, including Brian Garner, who is not just a lawyer and a consultant on legal language, but of course a lexicographer. And a usage maven, he argues strongly that pleaded should be the preferred use for lawyers.
2: We see this word spike every time somebody, a note, pleads guilty. (laughs) Or Um, pleads innocent. Right, or pleads innocent. (laughs) Pleads anything.
0: And there's no real justification for preferring one over the other, is there? Other than what is established. That's primarily what we look at, and I think that's what Garner looks at also.
1: Sure, and a little bit more of the background here is that pleaded became the dominant form in British English, but pled was used in Scottish English, which is likely how it came to American English. And in the late 19th and early 20th centuries, pled was attacked by American usage commentators, perhaps because it was... Not used in good British usage. And though it's still sometimes criticized, it's fully respectable today, but pleaded is the more common form. It's just interesting that this happens to be a verb that's competing with itself.
0: So I think a point that we haven't addressed yet is that English does not have very many verbs with competing past tense forms. For the most part, if the past tense of a word like drink is drank, you don't really hear drinked, you know? Mm -hmm. So it's really unusual for a verb to have two competing forms and for people to hear both forms being used by people who are clearly skilled users of the language. So in the most formal context, we hear pleaded and we hear pled spoken by professional speakers of various stripes.
3: And I think the ones that you do hear, like sneaked and snuck, as we mentioned, have this sort of conflict about them. Some people do not accept that other form. It's not this case where both forms are... So standard and common, and there isn't this, like, widespread objection to one or the other. Some people do find pleaded more appropriate in some context than pled, but it's not this outrage that snuck generates. Some people just completely abolish it from their language. It seems to speak to how verbs are learned. They just kind of arise so naturally in our vocabulary and that we understand that when we learn irregular forms, that they're not a special ed ending. It sticks with us. Sometimes we might learn the wrong one. I remember as a child singing brang instead of bring until Mm -hmm. I was corrected to say brought. But once I did, that was it. And the idea of bring was never part of my vocabulary, so I don't think it ever occurred to me. So it sort of speaks to how language is acquired. Exactly.
2: I I have to admit that I used to find it so charming when my son, when he was little, would screw this Mm. up. I never corrected him. And I had this hope that he would continue saying things like, you shouldn't have doed that mm-hmm. rather than you shouldn't have done that. And, of course, he just changed and started sure. speaking correctly, even without any guidance from me. I mean, of course. Something ruined him. Yes. Yeah. Somebody else ruined him.
1: But language is a habit. You acquire the habit. That's what it is. And English is unusually difficult already because of these irregular forms. But then with these competing forms, it's a tricky thing.
0: all who have written to us. If you have a question or comment, email us at wordmatters at m-w.com. You can also visit us at nepm.org. And for the word of the day and all your general dictionary needs, visit merriam-webster.com. Our theme music is by Tobias Voigt. Artwork by Annie Jacobson. Word Matters is produced by John Vosey and Adam Maid. For Neil Servan, Ammon Shea, and Peter Sokolowski, I'm Emily Brewster. Word Matters is produced by Merriam-Webster in collaboration with New England Public Media.